Welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In with me, Paul Johnson, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Charlie Pickles, who is the director of the Reform Think Tank, and also rather importantly for today's purposes, uh, is a member of the Social Security Advisory Committee and a while ago was also an advisor at the Department for Work and Pensions. Um, I'm also joined by my colleague, Tom Waters, who leads a lot of our work at the IFS on welfare and benefits and income distribution. And what we're going to be talking about today is that monster of a welfare benefit and welfare reform universal credit, which is um, replacing essentially most of the means tested benefits that we've had for working age people uh, for a long time. It's been um, it's been in the process of being designed and implemented for a good decade now, possibly uh, more, and it's still got uh, still got a way to go. And it really is very, very big. Um, and, and, and just to give a, a sense of that, perhaps if I start with you, Tom, just to give a sense of just how big this thing is, how many people will be getting it and how much is it going to cost? So when universal credit's fully rolled out, we expect something in the neighbourhood of one in four working age families to be receiving it at any point in time. And over a longer period of time, that will be even more because people come on and, and off the benefit. Uh, and it's thought to cost something like £60 billion a year. Um, so that, that makes up, would make up more than half of working age welfare benefits. So that really is, um, I mean, when we talk about benefits and um, when we talk about universal credit, I think we just don't often have in our mind that this is something which at any moment in time will be being received by one family in four of working age in this country. So this isn't just a uh, a relatively small thing that only affects the very poor or only affects those who are um, unemployed. This goes to a lot of low-income, low-earning, working um, families, as well as uh, the, the unemployed, as well as those needing help with their housing costs, as well as um, indeed quite a lot of people who need help because of um, some disability. So this is something that uh, is, is, is going to be re- received by a huge number um, of people. And it really is a very big reform. And, and Charlie, perhaps we could um, come to you just to give us a little bit of the the history here. I mean, up until um, you know, 2010, and for quite a long time, we had a whole host of means-tested benefits, uh, income support and um, uh, housing benefit and uh, various kinds of unemployment and disability um, benefits. And... Conservative government came in, in or the coalition government came in in 2010 with this big, bold um, uh, strategy to replace all of those, sweep them away and bring in a single uh, means-tested benefits to uh, replace all of them. And, of course, the, uh, the tax credits that had been introduced under the last Labour government. Why, 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 why go through such a such a huge, um, huge overturn, a huge change in the way that the benefit system worked. So you're right to highlight just how complicated um, the number of benefits were. So I think there was something like 30 odd different benefits and kind of, you know, an unimaginable number of combinations of benefits that you could receive um, before 2010. And so one of the objectives of introducing universal credit was 
was to simplify, was to make it easier so that, you know, if you're a claimant, let's face it, a lot of claimants will have an awful lot going on in their lives that they will be anxious or, or worried about. The last thing they need is to have to apply for multiple benefits from different institutions. What they want to be able to do is apply for one single benefit, know that then that's going to get them, as you just described, Paul, you know, the housing element, if that's what they're, they're going to get, you know, child elements, disability elements, as well as the, the kind of um, the standard allowance, that, that kind of main payment. So simplifying the system was a real ambition for um, the coalition government in introducing UC. But probably the most important um, objective was around making work pay. Um, so you've already pointed to one of the big shifts, which was that UC is both an in-work and an out-of-work benefit, something that um, it seems that, you know, actually people who really should know better often forget. Um, so that's one of the ways that it's trying to be dynamic. So if you move in and out of work, we know a lot of people on low incomes can have fluctuating earnings. You know, they might be in work one month. Maybe they, they don't have work another. This is designed to be a dynamic system. Um, but crucially, it's also designed to have a single taper rate, a single withdrawal rate. And, and what I mean by that is um, rather than previously where, for example, for every pound of um, I don't know, council tax, you've got a certain number of pence uh, withdrawn if you move into work. Uh, and then there's a different number of pence that's withdrawn uh, if you uh, from your job seekers allowance, if that's, for example, the, the benefit you're on then. And then a different amount from your housing benefit. What Universal Credit does is it has a single taper rate, which means that you lose 65p um, in each pound as you earn another pound. So it was designed to make it a lot simpler, a lot clearer that people are better off in work. I'll leave it to others to judge whether that's been entirely successful. 65p is still quite a lot. I mean, I you know, um, the higher rate of tax is 40p. The, the, the very top rate of tax is 45p. Um, Tom, perhaps you could sort of take us through why we end up having to have, and I think we do have to have, such very high rates of withdrawal for something like universal credit. I mean, we are effectively taxing those on the lowest incomes, at least in sense of how much they lose for each additional pound they earn at higher rates than we are the very highest paid. Yeah, when you include income tax and, and national insurance, people on the lowest earnings can often face these kind of effective tax rates of 70, 75%, sometimes even a bit more. Um, I think the key, there's, there's two key factors to keep in mind. So the first one is for people with no incomes at all, no, no earnings from work or, or any other source, how much support do we want them to be given by the government? And if that's going to be set at a certain uh, minimum standard, kind of a high enough standard, then if you taper away those benefits very slowly as their earnings increase, that logically implies that people with pretty high earnings are still going to be entitled to a relatively decent, uh, significant amount of benefits. And so that's the kind of um, trade-off you can't really get away from is if you give a, 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 a significant amount to people who have no earnings at all, then you either have to taper those, uh, that, the, those benefits away as their earnings increase, or you accept the benefit system reaching really quite far up the income distribution. So I think that's the reason why we've historically had and still still have with universal credit these pretty high taper rates. So you've just got a, an unavoidable trade-off, haven't you, Charlie? I mean, that's the sort of thing that you were been wrestling with back in the early 2010s in terms of devising universal credit. If you're going to give money to people when they're out of work and you don't want to be giving lots of money to people on high incomes, you have to 
take it. Um, you have to take it away. Um, so how? I mean, how difficult was it coming up with the design that you ended up with? Because I mean, clearly there are, there's almost an infinite number of ways of making those trade offs. There absolutely are, um, and you know, benefits are complicated for a reason. Um, so in terms of coming up with the the sort of idea of universal credit, that was actually largely done um, by the Centre for Social Justice, who who are uh, is, which is a think tank that I was at um, prior to going into the department when uh, Ian Duncan Smith got made Secretary of State. So so a lot of that heavy lifting work had been done in a think tank, uh, not dissimilar to your, yours and ours at, at the moment. But in terms of the decision, once we were into government. Um, what we haven't mentioned here is that universal credit was born at a time of um, incredible fiscal consolidation. So uh, this was, you know, this was designed in government terms in in kind of the early uh, 2010s when um, we were not only trying to create this system that we hoped would be fairer, simpler, um, better for claimants and encourage more people into work, but we were trying to do it at a time when we were required to take billions of pounds out of um, the welfare budget. Now, we could have a whole other conversation about the rights and wrongs of different measures uh, that were taken in terms of the welfare cuts. But one of the deciding factors for um, thinking about something like a taper rate was what can we afford and what is the Treasury going to fund us to be able to do? And so actually, originally, we were hoping the taper rate could have been closer to 55%. And we felt that that was you know, fair. It meant that, yes, you were losing a bit more than you were keeping. So addressing some of those concerns that Tom was um, highlighting, but actually would, would give you that little bit extra incentive for moving up uh, the earnings scale, moving into work and then up the earnings scale. But it just wasn't possible. And we couldn't get that through the Treasury. And, and you know, you have similar decisions about other elements of universal credit how much can you keep before you have any money withdrawn? You know, the earnings disregard. Um, how do you treat a second earner, for example, given that we know you see as a household benefit rather than an individual benefit? Lots of different trade-offs as you put it. But ultimately, what it comes down to is what can you afford to do? We're talking about eye-watering numbers here. Yeah, I think it's a really good example of the kinds of trade-offs that have to go on inside government the whole time. And it doesn't matter whether it's in social security or in health or education or what have you everyone can always think of something more they could do with those extra billions and the treasury's always there going saying no 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 for <laughs> you know for you know, overall for uh, for good um for good reason um the, the i mean i think it's um fair to say uh, isn't it that the um universal credit as it's being introduced is on average no more or no less generous than the set of benefits currently there that it's that, that it's replacing is that that's broadly fair isn't it tom and uh, but but there will be some winners and some losers yeah absolutely on average the effects are pretty close to zero um that but but you do get quite significant winners and losers so it's in, it's in a kind of in ways that are kind of predictable if you know a bit about the system so uh, renters tend to do better under universal credit because under the old system, as they increase their earnings, they would lose tax credits and they would lose housing benefit. Whereas, as Charlie was explaining a moment ago, under UC, they just kind of have this single taper rate. So renters tend to do better uh, under UC. Um, there are some um, disabled claimants who can sometimes do they, they can sometimes do better under one or, or the other, and um, those who have significant assets definitely do better under the old system. So there kind of there are ways which you can um, kind of carve up the population and see 
quite predictable changes one way or the other, but some of these changes really are quite significant. So you can have changes in excess of a thousand pounds a year or not too infrequent, either positive or negative. So there are winners and losers, which often make um, things unpopular, but actually universal credit, one gets the sense has had a bit of a bad press, not so much because um, in the long run, there are some winners and losers, but, but more for all sorts of other reasons, partly to do with the administration, partly to do with um, what's known as the initial waiting period um, before you actually get the the, the, the benefit. But but Charlie, perhaps you go. I mean, it, I mean, as you've described, I mean, this thing was introduced with all all the best intentions in the world, and as Tom has just told us, it's not actually on average any less generous than what it's um replacing but uh, it's not you know it's not been a it's not been a smooth path and it's not been um you know i i i suspect um, perhaps this is easing off a bit at the moment but certainly over the last several years it's had a pretty bad press i mean what's your sense of why um that that's been the case I think it's in in part uh, for the reason that I I said earlier, which is that it was introduced at a time when literally billions of pounds were being taken out of the welfare system. So there's a sort of um, a kind of inbuilt association now with universal credit and welfare cuts, which I think is really unfortunate. Um, and and again, I would suggest that some people who should know better, including parliamentarians. Um, have failed to uh, split those two issues and recognise that universal credit has. And, you know, as we sit here today, a year on from from the pandemic, I think we'd all have to recognise that, thank goodness, we had universal credit in, in place, because actually the robustness of the system in terms of bringing masses of new claimants in um, withstood uh, the challenge it was faced. And I don't think we would have seen that with legacy benefits. Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, when people talk about, you know, getting rid of universal credit, as I think the Labour uh, uh, opposition are, are still saying they would do, um, I think what they really mean is they would want to change certain elements of universal credit, because I'm not sure why you would want to go back to a, uh, a system that was complicated with, you know, quite frankly, so many combinations that you or I probably couldn't quite understand exactly what we might end up with, never mind someone who's struggling with debt or having lost their job or, or perhaps lower education levels of qualifications. So it's really about how you improve it. And um, the five-week wait, which is one of the things that, Paul, you just mentioned, is definitely a challenge. And what we've seen is some fairly good data showing that people um, who claim universal credit and then have to wait five weeks until they actually get a payment um, are forced into debt during that period. And, you know, there's been kind of some, some um, dispute as to whether the rise in food bank usage is linked directly to that. But but I think what we can say is that there are certainly some correlations uh, going on. And so reducing that wait time would certainly alleviate one of the biggest um, problems with universal credit. But there are also things like we've talked about the taper rate, if you could make it a bit more generous. There are issues around second earners. There, there, are, there are all sorts of specific policy challenges. But if you took them each in turn and decided whether you wanted to do something about it and pick those that are you know the, the kind of I suppose most damaging that actually you could quite quickly get to a point where I think a lot of the criticism leveled against UC is would, would no longer be valid because it's not in a sense the the, the structure it, it, people could not argue exactly. about the 65% um, taper rate but that's actually lower for a lot of people than the previous one and it's not so much that I, mean, I don't think anyone's really against the idea of bringing these 
benefits together. It has been a lot about some of these what feel like administrative issues, but actually a big impacts on um, on recipients. Um, and what, one of you know, my, my, what, one of the things that I think was part of um, the thinking, and I'd be interested in your view on whether this really was part of where thinking was at the time that it was being introduced, was that you moving to particularly um, less frequent payments, monthly payments, was was part of getting people on benefits sort of behaving more like or getting used to the, you know, as, 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 as getting paid in the same way that they would be if they were in, um, they were in work. I mean, do you think that was a, um, you know, I mean, that's caused a degree of controversy as well, as has um, paying um, a housing benefit to the recipients rather than to the landlords. I mean, these all sort of sound like good ideas, you know, from possibly from Whitehall, but might feel like less good ideas to people who are actually experiencing, as you say, the debt and the poverty and the toughness, you know, making ends meet week by week. I mean, what were those? Um, I mean, how, how did that thinking go and how, how, how much of an issue do you think that's been? I think you're spot on. Um, so absolutely, um, there was very much, um, uh, I would say, quite quite considerable amount of time um, put into thinking about uh, how you can make the benefit system um, more reflective of, as you said, Paul, um, you know, kind of how people who aren't on benefits live their life. Um, and so that was where the, the idea came um, from moving from um, two weekly fortnightly payments to monthly payments and also to paying uh, rent directly to the claimant uh, as opposed to directly to the landlord because you know I mean you and I if we're renting we we don't get that we, we have to see that money we have to budget we have to set it aside we have to pay our rent so so there was very much I guess um a focus on uh, could we could we mimic the behaviours better in the benefit system um, of those, that, you know, people who once they hopefully move up into work and out and even off, you see the kind of behaviours that they would need at that point. Now, the reason you're spot on is because it's a very valid argument. And and you're right, sitting in Caxton House, which is where the Department of Work and Pension is, or, or indeed, you know, anywhere in Whitehall, um, it seems sensible, right? Because we're on salaries. So we get paid monthly and you know we all are in relatively well-paid jobs you know we we've kind of got basic budgeting skills at minimum that's not necessarily um the lives of people that you see as serving and actually an awful lot of people in work aren't on kind of salaries they're on hourly rates and they're not paid monthly you know they are paid at different intervals and so i think there was a little bit of Perhaps naivety is the best word. I think. I think again, you know, good intentions in trying to do something which we hoped would help, um, you know, set claimants up for the future, but actually not really having thought through whether our assumptions were going to be helpful or, or detrimental in the long run. And I think this is one of the areas where um, we still see a lot of pushback. You know, it, it's become sort of one of the sort of red flags or the kind of totem poles that says this is what you know this is what you see is supposed to do in my mind this is absolutely one of the areas that a kind of acknowledgement that the thinking perhaps wasn't you know at the time we thought it would work it hasn't you know classically in government in Whitehall it's very difficult to say we got something wrong but I think we did get this wrong. Now it's kind of interesting I just on a sort of broader point there I mean there'll be some people listening to this thinking that's um, you know 
pretty shocking in, in, in a way um, because of it. obviously lots of people were predicting that this would be an issue. To what extent, as part of the policy design, did you engage with the sort of potential recipients and indeed the people in your own department at the sharp end of working with um, recipients? And to what extent, because it feels like this, the way you describe it, this was kind of designed almost, um, uh, you know, at you know, some real distance from the people who are actually going to be affected? So I definitely don't think that's the case. Um, I, you know, the, the DWP does engagement all the time with benefit claimants um, and with, you know, stakeholders that represent those claimants, so different charities and, and, and bodies. Um, likewise, certainly when we had been developing, um, I think what we call dynamic benefits, gosh, this is reaching back, as we said, over over a decade when, when we were in the Centre for Social Justice, um, I mean, we did hours and hours and hours of work engaging with um, claimants, you know, small groups who grassroots charities working with those claimants, big national charities working with those claimants. Um, I don't think it was a lack of engagement. I think it was a naivety. I think it was a, again, it was kind of one of those sorts of, we think this is one of the challenges that that people on benefits face, which is budgeting, which is, you know, kind of making that shift from what is, the benefit system is is a pretty paternalistic um, kind of passive body if that's the way I can put it and so the idea was trying to put more um, ownership and and more agency in the hand of claim hands of claimants I think it was just that we we underestimated well we both underestimated the impact that could have I think um, but also hadn't quite recognized that actually you could well be you know in full-time work and and still not being uh in receipt of a monthly payment or whatever it might be so i don't think it was a lack of engagement i think it was just naivety in designing the system and now i think you know it's a big problem that people won't backtrack on it Hmm. well that yeah that is as you say often a problem in government that uh, admitting mistakes and admitting you're wrong is um is often uh, is often very difficult but tom charlie was just saying then um that you know we've got through to we got through to 2020 Universal credit had been significantly, but not fully rolled out, and then uh, and then we had the pandemic. But um, before I ask you a bit about what we know about the experience during the pandemic, just just how far are we through that process? I mean, how many people have we still got to bring on to universal credit, and um, you know what do we know about why it's taken so long? So there's still a good number of people getting the old style of benefits. There's something like one and a half million getting working tax credit. uh, And there's a couple of million who are getting the legacy out of work benefits. Uh, The the pandemic has certainly sped up the process because the way that UC has been rolled out so far is when your circumstances change significantly and you're on the, the old benefits, the legacy benefits, you then get rolled across to UC. And the pandemic, of course, caused the change in circumstances for a lot of people um why has it taken so long i think i think the key the key thing has been this is that the, the government have relied on um people's circumstances changing things like losing your job or entering work or having a child um in order to to roll the, the scheme out if you your circumstances haven't changed you will have just stayed on legacy benefits and they haven't yet got around to um kind of manually if you like pushing those people across to universal credit and there have been uh, a lot of dates when they were going to start doing that and then things get pushed back and I think they have been doing some pilots before the pandemic we were doing some pilots on 
um, on that. But uh, for for whatever kind of administrative reason, that has proven to be um, a process that's taken quite a long time. And I think UC was meant to be fully rolled out by something like 2018 or 2017, perhaps, when it was initially conceived of. And by the time we got to 2018, I think it was only a third rolled out or something. So uh, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's um, a, a, fair, a fair bit behind schedule, I think it's fair to say. Um, because of these sort of administrative reasons. A fair bit behind schedule is quite generous, I think. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> many years behind the original schedule would be... Um, yeah. may end up as much as a decade behind <laughs> schedule. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, that's, that's that's probably one of the reasons why it's got a bit of a bad, um, mm-hmm. uh, a bad press, is because it has taken such a long time relative to what I think were overly optimistic initial... Um, assumptions to get the whole thing, uh, the whole thing rolled out, and it's sort of begin. At one point, it was looking like yes, another disastrous government IT project. Um, I think it's been pulled back um, uh, from that, and it is something we will get in the end. Um, but the, I mean, Tom, what do we know about how many people were? You know, we've, we've got this kind of quite new system um, in place, and then we have. The pandemic hit, and I think we had we, we had staggering numbers of people um, applying for universal credit in the first um, in the first couple of months of um, uh, of, of last year's lockdown, didn't we? Yeah, in the in the fortnight after lockdown was announced, uh, almost a million people applied, uh, and there was one day when a hundred thousand uh, uh, applications were made. So that's about ten times the normal rate. I mean, that, that really is pretty significant. And this does connect to something that Charlie said earlier. Is Actually, UC and, and, and the department did pretty well there in keeping uh, keeping things ticking over over that period. Ninety three percent apparently of claims were paid on time from that from uh, those applications, which uh, I think is is pretty good going when you've seen such a massive increase in um, in, the, in, the, in in applications. And there's now something like five million or just under five million, I think, um, families that are, are on universal credit. That's quite something, a million people in a single day applying for... for in, over, over a fortnight, there's 100,000 in a day. 100,000 a day, sorry, a million over a fortnight. That's still, that's still quite a, quite a substantial, um, to put it mildly, quite a substantial number. And of course, you know, to some extent, the thing that has kept Universal Credit in the headlines over the last year has been the decision a year ago to increase the, um, the main rate by £20 a week. Um, again, just give us a sense, Tom, of how you know, £20 a week, if I'm honest, um, you know, being on a decent salary doesn't sound like very much to me, but um, but for people on universal credit, it, it really is quite a substantial amount of money, isn't it? Yeah, so the key, the key thing about the, the impact of £20 a week is is what what um, what kind of claimant are you in the sense of if, if you are a renter and you've got lots of kids, um, your entitlement, your basic entitlement might be quite high already in £20 a week actually might be a, a, a less proportionally significant um, increase. Whereas if you, for example, are single without children and you own your own home, it's something like, um, uh, it, it, it makes up more than 20%, I think it's 21% or something of your uh, entitlement. So for, for those people who are entitled to less, it, it really is pretty significant. And this actually, this, this, what, this really interacts actually with the kinds of people that have been pushed onto universal credit because of the pandemic. Um, so more than half 
of people who are on UC now are single without children, which is completely um, unlike the standard benefit composition, the composition of benefit claimants that we would have seen prior to the pandemic. And this just this is because a lot of people have lost their job of being younger um, because of the pandemic. So um, for for a lot of those those people who don't have kids, uh, that um, their basic entitlement is not particularly high, uh, and the twenty pounds a week can be really quite a significant proportion, as I said, more than more than twenty percent of uh, of their entitlement. And when you say not particularly high, we're talking what seventy pounds a week or something like that. Yeah, the yeah the basic entitlement I think now is about seventy five a week without the twenty pounds uplift for for yeah single person no children who's not renting yeah they're, they're on something like seventy five a week. And that's not a lot to live on, I think it would be uh, fair to say. So you can see why £20 a week in those circumstances really is, uh, you know, a a lot of money. Um, And Charlie, of course, we're there back to those trade-offs, aren't we? I mean, we've got the the Treasury accepted this or um, agreed this £20 a week increase on an explicitly temporary basis for a year. And then in the budget... um, uh, just last week, as we we're recording this, the Chancellor extended it for a further six months under a huge amount of pressure to um, to keep it going. But what? How, how is the politics of that going to work? I mean, he's obviously put off the evil day in which he, you know, a, a final decision has to be made, I and mean, he will say he's made the decision, and it will be cut by twenty pounds a week in um, in October. But how, how do you see the politics of that playing out? Not very well, uh, <laughs> would, would be my, my very short answer. My slightly longer answer uh, would be, um, I, I suppose if you're sitting in the Treasury right now, um, you are worried about the public finances, and that's your trade-offs point. So um, I think it's somewhere in the region of $6 billion it would cost to make it permanent um, annually. Um, so, you know, it's not insignificant if you think about the gap that we need to close uh, in terms of what we spend uh, and what we bring in um, uh, in terms of the public finances. So so you're thinking about that. You're also probably thinking, mm, I reckon in six months time, economy is going to be kind of motoring. You know, a lot of those people who went on to universal credit will have come off uh, or at least had their hours increased and be less dependent on on universal credit so as tom was saying it's quite a different cohort that's flow that's um uh, flown onto uh, universal uh, universal credit than was existing there um so maybe you're thinking perhaps then it's just not as much of an issue because a lot of those people that came onto it would have gone back off um i think that would be very naive um i think there is a not necessarily that that won't have happened, but that that, that will dampen the outcry uh, when we get to um, the withdrawal of the uplift. And I think, you know, I think there's a, a there's a problem here. And I mentioned right at the start um, that one of the big differences of UC is it's both in and out of work. And I thought it was quite interesting some of the discussions pre-budget, um, particularly uh, amongst some parliamentarians uh, about. And actually, some commentators about you know we 
we why should we be giving more money to people who are you know out of work you know etc etc we need to get them into work and really failing to recognize that about 40 percent of people currently on uc are in work so actually um if you think about the red wall seats uh, you think about the you know those parts of the country that the conservatives won um back in december 2019 the prime minister told us he had had his uh, their their votes had been lent to him there's going to be a lot of people in those areas um that will be benefiting from the 20 pounds uh and so politically i think it wouldn't be particularly wise to remove it and of course you've just got to remember that we've got very very low levels uh, of our benefits you know we are not a generous benefit country that standard allowance if you stack it up against um you know other countries looks pretty meager partly because of course um going back to those welfare cuts um we mistakenly and the dwp lobbied very hard against this but we mistakenly applied a multi-year benefit freeze so you know people on benefits were getting poorer um year on year so this 20 pound uplift i think is going to have to be extended further not just because the political fallout i think will be massive um but also because the benefits are too low at the moment they're just too low yeah and it's um i mean it, it is extraordinary looking at the the benefit rates for um you know, particularly childless people out of work they, they they've not risen in in literally half a century i mean they are the same level i mean before that 20 pound uplift in real terms as they were 50 years ago at a time when average living standards and earnings have gone up by two or three times so they've fallen further and further and further behind i mean you know this isn't really a uh, a podcast about the politics but it is but i'm fascinated by the politics of of this i mean you've just set out I think, you know, uh, it seems to me fairly straightforward common sense that the politics of ending this in October are going to be hideous and there's a very high probability that, you know, government's going to have to back down. Why why can't they see that? Well, I mean, you could ask that question, Paul, on several of the things that they had to back down on repeatedly, right? I mean, um, what a brilliant question. Um, I think it comes back to, as I say, you know, a genuine worry in the Treasury about the public finances. I think the Chancellor himself is very concerned about what might happen with interest rates and therefore servicing the debt. Um, And to be honest, I think that, you know, the benefit system has been has ne- has never really been a massive priority um for kind of the backbenchers so you know if you think about previously who typically conservative voters were they were much less likely to be people who were dependent on benefits i think there's a sort of a mind shift that's happening now within the party recognizing that actually the base the conservative base looks very different now to what it looked like, you know, a decade ago. And so I think perhaps there's a bit of catch up to do. And I think on the U-turn, I just think we've seen so many of them, haven't we? Um, And, you know, maybe it's wishful thinking that the context will be so very different come uh, six months time that the conversation will be different. But I just, I can't see that happening. Yeah, and uh, and it's just just a reminder again, a quarter of the working age population Will be on this, or will uh, will eventually be on universal credit. So this is not a minority sport. I mean, this 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 affects a large 
you know, a really large number of people. I mean, I can completely understand why the Treasury are where they are. I mean, they introduce something as temporary and then, you know, <laughs> just worry about uh, everything they do that's temporary becoming permanent in exactly the way that you that you describe. I'm pretty sure they must have someone in there at the time, though, who sort of went, really? Is this going to be temporary? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that flag would have been flown. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, and I think they're... Uh, well, they only need Marcus Rashford to start campaigning on it, and um, it's uh, it, it's going to be very hard for them. Um, we're we're coming sadly to the, the 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 end of this, so I suppose we ought to look a look forward a bit in terms of what next. I mean, Tom, Tom, what's your view about um, you know we've had this as you said this kind of not just huge spike in numbers applying for universal credit, but also a very different population. On universal credit over the last year because of the um, pandemic. Um, I mean, do you think that's going to change anything very much? And I mean, are, are indeed, are there changes you would like to see in the way that it's designed? So I think, you know, the, the, the optimistic case of the economy is people get back into work really quickly and uh, we kind of return something like normality quite quickly. And actually the people who are on UC now have are on a lots of dimensions are more advantaged than um, the kind of typical case. Though. They're more likely to have a degree and things like that, have worked in a high skilled occupation before, that sort of thing. Perhaps they are able to get back into work quite quickly. And uh, actually the, the the benefit caseload ends up looking kind of quite like what we're what we're used to. And perhaps that, that that's the kind of thing that you could imagine actually uh, resulting in you know, getting rid of uh, or undermining kind of some of the calls for uh, longer term structural change to to the system. I think in in the world where the benefit caseload remains higher, and particularly given that a lot of people now have interacted with the benefit system who never have before, uh, it does uh, underline the point we were talking about a moment ago that the at least for out of work benefits, certainly for those without children the basic entitlements are pretty low compared with to other developed countries and compared to the past. Um, and you could imagine that that results in increasing calls for more permanent increases, perhaps making the £20 uplift permanent, but you could imagine other increases as well. Um, there are bigger questions, questions we definitely don't have time to get into now, but uh, bigger questions about the fundamental design of the UK benefit system. And so what we have in the, in, in the UK is um, very much means-tested benefits. Benefits are targeted towards those who have low incomes. If you look across many other developed countries, particularly at continental Europe, um, they have much more in the way of contributory benefits. If you've been working for a while and you've, so you've paid into the system, then you lose your job, then at least for a period, maybe six months or something, you get a higher rate of of benefits. And it is the fact that we don't have almost any contributory element at all is exactly why the government felt the need to develop the furlough scheme on the fly. Because we don't have a furlough scheme normally. If you normally if you lose your job, you're not going to get the government paying 80% of your wages. Um, and whether the what one one key question I think for the government is whether they want to take from the pandemic from the furlough scheme where they want to uh, take take the lesson, but actually something more like a contributory system uh, is in the long run justified. That would be a very big, another very big change. Perhaps they feel like they've had enough of big changes to the benefit system. Uh, but I think that's that's the kind of really big structural question that the pandemic has raised. Well, that really is a big structural question. I think we'll need another one of these, um, uh, another one of these podcasts to get into that. 
Um, but Charlie, if you were sitting in DWP uh, again now, advising the, the the minister on universal credit, what would you be uh, suggesting that Therese Coffey's um, uh, priorities ought to be? Well, after locking in the £20 uh, and, and making sure that it's not withdrawn uh, in six months' time, um, I, I'm, I'm along similar lines to Tom. I think this has... Um, shown us just how threadbare um, the system is for anyone who earns even kind of just above the sort of average earnings. I mean, even average earnings, to be honest, you know, you you fall on to hard times, you know, you lose your job, um, you think you've been paying into a system for years and years and years via your national insurance, your tax, uh, and someone turns around to you and says, Oh yes, no. We'll give you eighty quid, a hundred quid a week uh, for your standard allowance, and I think your jaw hits the table as you think about how on earth you're going to meet your bills. And yes, of course, there are other elements. You know, for example, you might get contributions towards housing costs, but you know, the sort of um, shift in uh, very, very rapidly you're going to have to make in your outgoings uh, to kind of get them in line with what benefits will provide you is is huge. Um, and that's why we will see people and we are seeing a lot of the people uh, on UC that have um, flowed onto it during this period being pushed into debt uh, and not and, you know, being worried about meeting kind of essential bills. Um so I would be looking at, OK, we have UC, we've got the fundamentals. I mean, let's set aside the continued rollout, which will, I'm sure, still be at the uh, top of the Secretary of State's in-tray. Um, I would be starting to ask the question of what might uh, bringing back some element of the contributory principle look like. Could you, for example, think about having a sort of um, temporary higher level? So, you know, Tom talked about um, the kind of model uh, on the continent or, or in a lot of countries on, on the continent. Well, um, yes, they pay a proportion like our furlough, a percentage uh, replacement rate for um, the earnings that have been lost. But that's normally for a, a time limited period. Um, so actually, could we look at saying, you know, if you've paid into the system, whatever the level of contribution are uh, that we would set it at, um, then for the first six months, for example, of your unemployment, we will give you a higher rate because we believe that you need that period of time to adjust your outgoings. We also think it might be beneficial to give you a bit longer to find the right job rather than ending up taking a job that means you're underemployed, which can often happen when you've got very, very low levels of benefits. So I'm certainly not sitting here saying that is what uh, Trey's Kofi will be thinking about, or indeed anyone in government will be thinking about. But I think, but you know, if you if you were to ask me if I were there, what would I like them to be thinking about? What would I be pushing for? Then I think rethinking this would be quite quite um, important. And as a final comment, you know, it was interesting. I think it was the so the Shadow Work and Pension Secretary um, gave an interview. It was before the pandemic, so I would guess back end of 2019, where he talked about precisely this point, the contributory principle, people think they've paid in, you know, if we're going to talk about a something for something system, then we actually have to hold up our side of the bargain, the state side of the bargain. So I think there's some interesting dynamics here that could lead to a really worthwhile conversation. Um, if we don't just bury our head in the sand and go, it's fine, it's all going to go back to normal, UC was doing all right, yeah, we can tweak it, you know, at the edges. Um, I think there is an opportunity here. And I'd like to see some, some proper reformist thinking on it. Well, how interesting. I mean, I think that's uh, one one measure of the effect of the uh, the last year on on the thinking, actually, of um, you know of, of, of people like you, Charlie, and you, Tom, in terms of uh, you know my guess is that if I asked that question a year ago, I might be wrong. I would have got a slightly different 
answer. So I think that's a really fascinating, um, fascinating thing. And we'll see whether it actually has an impact on government thinking um, and policy. It's been an absolutely fantastic conversation with, uh, with, with, with the two of you. I mean, the, the thought I would, I, I still just, I just want to repeat this, this point to everyone listening. Just don't forget that when people talk about universal credit, this is something which directly at any particular moment in time affects one fam- one family in four among people of working age in this country. And a lot more of that over a period of time, because, of course, a lot most people don't stay on it for a very long time. So people move on and off. This is not just a benefit affecting a small number of the unemployed. It is one that affects, if not quite the majority, certainly a large minority um, of people uh, in this country, including a large number of people on relatively low pay, certainly by no means just the unemployed. So all of what you've heard today, all of this um, information about the structure and level of universal credit and the way that it's paid really matters enormously, and not least, as Tom pointed out towards the beginning, that it costs the Treasury north of £60 billion uh, a year, which is, for example, more than the entire defence uh, budget. So this is this is big money um, as well. So I hope uh, I hope you found this podcast as fascinating as I did. So please tune in uh, next time for all of our latest work. Please visit www.ifs.org.uk and to further support our work, do consider becoming a supporter of the IFS for just five pounds a month. You can find a link for further information in the episode description. Thank you for listening and stay well. <laughs>